theyeshiva.net. Today's class is dedicated by Shmuel Mandel in honor of his Ashes Chayel, Miriam, and their 22nd wedding anniversary. Mazel Tov. For many, many, many long, happy, healthy, prosperous years filled with nachas, joy, serenity, tranquility, harchava, bracha, and hatzlacha ad blidai, Yisrael, and thank you for your partnership, thank you for your friendship, happy anniversary. Shmuel and his family were also the ones who sponsored the creation of the original app for theyeshiva.net, so thank you very much for that. And now we're updating it into a new version for Ezer Hashem speedily. Thank you, and mazel tov. So I'm, you know, you know those scenes where you have this really, really sophisticated presentation, whether it's a production, a play, or a concert, thousands of people are mesmerized by the artists, by the performers, by the musicians, by the singers. The stage is set impeccably to perfection. There's the right, right sound effects lights and shadows, a real, real top-notch production. And suddenly, a child who's lost just walks on to stage. And what happens? Everybody's focus shifts onto this child. You can have there, I don't know, Mordechai ben David, Davrema Lefried, Shweki, whoever your favorite uh, performer is, it doesn't matter. (laughs) You can have the greatest cantors, chazonim, singers, that little child who's looking for his mommy and sheepishly just walks across stage, managed to attract the attention of all 10 or 20,000 people in the room. You feel bad almost, right? You you feel almost bad for the singer, you know, he's, (laughs) he's trying so hard, but... Everybody's attention goes to the child. Why? And by the way, it's always like that, right? I can be giving a shear. I think it's a pretty good shear. Everybody's listening, yeah? Then somebody comes in like late, sits in the front, or somebody comes in with food, and everybody, everybody loses their attention and is attracted to that person. I've been trying to understand for years. Why is it? (laughs) Why is that? Perhaps one answer is, it's the only part of the show that's not choreographed. It's the only part that's authentic, real, raw. It was not part of the plan. There were no preparations for this. Somehow, there's a real story here that emerges that doesn't exist in the other story as authentic and as wonderful and as inspiring as it is. Well, I'm giving you this metaphor because I think it's really maybe inaccurate, perfect, maybe not perfect metaphor, but I think it really captures what happens at one verse in Parshas Vayishlach. There's a whole story. The narrative is flowing. Some parts of it are exhilarating and inspiring. Some parts of it are sad and tragic and always nuanced and complex and difficult. But there's a flow. You can see there's a flow from the beginning all the way till the end, as there is in every single Parsha of Torah. And then suddenly this whole divine flow is interrupted by a story without any sequence, any context, any uh, background, no backdrop, no strings attached. 
Nobody knows who, why, what, when, where, why now. And really, it captures your attention and it forces the reader, the student, to pay attention and, and try to understand what is happening here precisely because it doesn't seem to belong here. So if you open up your source sheets, you'll see what I'm referring to. It's Genesis chapter 35, verses 6, 7, and 8. Vayishlach, Perik Lamed Hei, Pasuk Vav Zayin and Ches. Let's remember the context of the story. Yaakov Avinu fled from his brother's wrath. Twenty years earlier, his mother told him it's time to leave. He departs from the land of Canaan. He relocates to a place called Haran. Today they call it Haran, H-R-R-R-A-N, in Mesopotamia. Northern Iraq, southern Turkey. He lives there. He marries Leah, he marries Rachel, Bila, Zilpah. They raise together 11 children, 11 sons, and a daughter, Dina. And now, finally, Yaakov is on his way back to his parents' home, living in Hebron, where he left from, well, he left so many years earlier. And he's going to go back to Hebron, where his parents live, Yitzchak and Rivka. And the story of Ayishlach is the journey back. Vayetze was the journey there, Vayishlach is the journey back. Of course, it opens up with him sending messengers to his brother Esav. He's looking for reconciliation, for peace, for coexistence. It continues with Yaakov preparing for possible war, confrontation. He prays, he sends a lavish gift to his brother, but they ultimately meet. And they meet, and it's a very moving moment of reconciliation. Esav hugs him and embraces him and falls on his neck, and they cry together. Esav wants them to live together. Yaakov says their time is not ripe yet. He continues his journey into Eretz Yisrael. He ends up in the region of Shechem. That's where tragedy strikes. Dina is abducted, violated by the son of the mayor, by Shechem, the son of Hamar. The children of Yaakov destroy Shechem. Dina is emancipated. Dina is liberated. Yaakov is frightened that everybody's going to gang up against him and destroy him and his young family. Mm. At that point, Yaakov decides to return to the place called Bet Kel, Bes El, that place that he was originally 20 years ago when he ran away from Eretz Yisrael to go to his uncle's house, Lavan. And that's where we're holding now in Parashas Vayishlach. Vayava Yaakov Luza Sheberetz Knan, he Beisel Huva Chalam Asherimai. Yaakov comes to a place called Luz in the land of Knan. It's the same place that we called Beisel, he and the entire entourage, the people that are with him. By the way, it's the first time that the title Am, nation, people, a nation is given to the Jewish family. I don't think there's any of it before that they're called an Am. It's really a family, you don't have a nation. But that's an interesting, uh, interesting thing to notice. He builds an altar and he calls the place Kale, base Kale, the place of Hashem, the house of Hashem, because over there Hashem revealed himself to him when he escaped from the wrath of his brother. Next Pasuk, Pasuk Ches. Thomas Dvoira Meinekes Rivka. Dvoira, the nurse of Rivka, Passed away. And 
and she was buried below this space, this region called Basel, Tachas Ha'aloin, below the oak tree. Vayikra Shmoy Aloin Bachus. So he, apparently Yaakov, calls the name of this place where she was buried Aloin Bachus, which means the oak tree of tears or the oak tree of weeping, of sobbing, of grief, of mourning. Aloin is a tree, it's an oak tree. Bachos comes from the word Bechi, like Vayifku, Lifkot. The oak tree of, of sadness. Next verse, Pasuk Tes. Shem now appears to Yaakov again when he returns from Padan Aram, that's the place of Lavan, and he blesses him. Shem also confirms his name change. Your name is Yaakov, but that should not be your name any longer. Yisrael should be your name, and Hashem calls his name Yisrael. And then the verse continues. They continue the travels. Rachel gives birth to Binyamin. She passes away. Yaakov buries her at Beis Lechem. Shortly after, there's a story of Reuven with Bilhah. Then there is the list of Yaakov's family's names. Then there is the story of Yaakov coming back home to meet his father Yitzchak in Hebron. Yitzchak passes away at 180. He's buried by Yaakov and Esav in the cave of Machpelah. And then the end of the parsha is the genealogy of Esav's family. And that's the story. So there is a flow. Yaakov comes back home at last with his family. Then we have the genealogy of his brother's family. But in his Pasuk, comes right in the middle, smack in the middle of this whole thing. He's returning, and suddenly a person dies. Dvoira. We never heard of Dvoira before. Dvoira's name was not mentioned anywhere in Chumash. But she is identified as Rivka's nurse. Meinekes of Rivka. The wet nurse of Rivka, apparently. Somebody who nursed Rivka. And we know that she was buried... And it's so significant to the fact that Yaakov gives this place a name. And the name of the place is, we know it's near Bethel, Bethel, the house of Hashem, because Hashem revealed himself back 20 years earlier and now again. But this place, right near Beisel, or under Beisel, is Aloin Bachus, the oak tree of tears. And the obvious question is, who is this lady? And whoever she is, the nurse of Rivka, why is this story transcribed in Chumash? There's no context, there's no sequence. What was she doing here? How does it come into this place in Torah where it's Mamish literally interrupts the narrative? Literally, no connection to before, no connection to after. So this is something that any student reads and you take pause. So Rashi the great commentator on Chumash, gives us the background. And he fills in some of the gaps. To understand this, as always in Tanakh, you have to ask yourself, do we remember this person from before? Well, the Torah gives a hint. The nurse of Rivka. Rivka had a nurse, somebody nursed him. Rivka had a... Somebody nursed her, sorry. Rivka had a wet nurse. Who is this? Do we remember this? So for this we go back a few portions earlier when Rivka travels from that very same region where Yaakov is coming from, the home of her father Psuel, her brother Lavan, where her son Yaakov returned to so many years earlier. And if you go to the next source in your source sheet, 
Back to Genesis chapter 24. Now we're in chapter 35. We go back to chapter 24, verses 57 and 58. The servant of Avram has come. He encountered Rivka at the well. He feels she is the best soulmate for his master's son Yitzchak. He goes to her parents' home, to her brother's home. He stays the night. He speaks to them. He shares with them the entire story. He tells them about Avram and about Yitzchak and about the long journey and how he met Rivka at the well with the camels and her kindness and graciousness and benevolence and selflessness that she displayed. And he really feels this is the right color, the right bride for his master's son Yitzchak. When push comes to shove, they hesitate. They're ambivalent. Maybe she should wait. She's not ready. And that's when the suggestion is, let's ask Rivka. They call Rivka. They tell her, Aselchi, Misha, do you want to go with this man? She says, Eilech, I will go. It's called decisiveness. One word. <laughs> Not even two words. Eilech, I will go. They sent Rivka, their sister. Lovan sent her off. It's his sister. Her nurse. And the servant of Avram. And his people. And what happens next? Vayevorchu es Rivka. They bless Rivka. Vayoymrulan, they tell her, Achoyseinu, O sister, Atayila alfei revava v'yir zarech eshar sainov. May you grow into thousands of myriads. May your offspring seize the gates of their foes. And this became an immortal pasach, not only because it's a verse in Chumash, but in many, many Jewish communities till this very day, moments before the Kala will go to the Chuppah as she's being covered with the shawl with the, with the, at the Badekinish by her groom, just like Rivka, our matriarch Rivka, it says when she met Yitzchak, Vatika Chatzoye Vatiska, she veiled herself. This blessing is offered to every Jewish bride, Achaiseinu, our sister, Atayila Alfi Revava, may you grow into thousands of myriads. So here it is. Rivka had a nurse. And the Torah makes note, makes sure that we know about it, even though it doesn't seem relevant to the story. The story is, I mean, there's so many details that we don't know about the story. We don't know, for example, who was Rivka's mother. Her name is not mentioned, even though she must have been part of the story. The Mepharshim struggles, she shows up in the beginning, and then later she's gone. What happened? Did she pass away? Did she not pass away? But the Torah only gives very, very few details in every story, those that are relevant to understand the history, to understand the story, and to provide lessons. But this is important. Who came with Rivka? Somebody the Torah calls Meinikta. What does Meinikta mean? So usually in Hebrew, we speak about a child nursing, right? Is Lahonik, to nurse. A Meinikta is somebody who nurses the child. In this case, obviously, you would call her a wet nurse who was nursing Rivka. But if you take a look in Targum Yonason, the next source, Umisas Dvoira, Dvoira died, Pidgugsa de Rivka, the pedagogue of Rivka. The pedagogue, you see, Pidgugsa is pedagogue. So Targum Yonason Benuziel believes it's not just physically nursing. 
But actually, she was an educator. She was a mentor. She was the pedagogue of Rivka. It's Rashi now who puts the two stories together. Rashi says in Vayishlach, Vatomas Dvoira, Ma'inyan Dvoira Beves Yaakov. Who is this Dvoira? How did she end up in the house of Yaakov? Why does she pass away here with Yaakov? Who is Dvoira? We know about Dina, we know Bila, we know Zilpa, we know Rachel, we know Leah. Who's Dvoira? We never heard of Dvoira. And why is she by Yaakov? Did he have another daughter? Is there another woman here that we didn't hear about that love and put in some other people? So Rashi says, When Yaakov was running away, Rivka told him, Go to my brother. Stay there for a few years. And I will send somebody to fetch you. Rivka sent Dvoira, her own nurse, her pedagogue. She sent her from Eretz Yisrael back to her parents' home, her brother's home, Lotzeis Misham, to take Yaakov back. Umesa Baderech. And this woman died on the road. Midivrei Reb Moshe Hadarshan Lamadatiya. Rashi says, I learned this from the words of the famous Reb Moshe Hadarshan who explained the Tanakh. So Rashi says, now we have a fuller picture. We don't know who Dvoira is, but we know that Rivka had a nurse. And what, who was she? She played a major role because she escorted Rivka from her home as a child to Yitzchak, and apparently she lived with Rivka. Targum Yonis and Benazil says she wasn't only a nurse, she was a pedagogue, she was a teacher. When Rivka now needs somebody to bring Yaakov back from her brother's house, who does she send? She sends her own teacher, her own pedagogue, or her own nurse. So she now went back to Padar Aram. She spent time with Yaakov and his family. She is the one who's bringing Yaakov back. And on the road back to Israel, she passed away. Obviously, she was very old because she was older than Rivka, who was Yaakov's mother. And that's how this comes in here. That's what Rashi is telling us. In fact, the Targum Yerushalmi uses the word Marbiyasa de Rivka, the one who raised Rivka, similar to the pedagogue, literally like a mother, a mentor, a teacher, a mother, she raised Rivka. And by the way, how old was Rivka when she left? Rashi holds she was three. The Chiskuni and others hold she was older, she was 13 already. So then a nurse doesn't mean she was nursing at three, at 13. Even at three, many people didn't nurse already. But it means somebody who was just always at her side, somebody who was there with her from birth, who might have nursed her in the past, but they developed a very deep kinship, and she was the one chosen to go with Rivka, the only one from her household that came along with her to her new life. She was chosen to go. Not her brother, not any other family member, but this woman, who the Torah doesn't give us the name. Only later do we find out that her name is Dvoira. If you want us to know the name, why don't you tell us the name the first time? You don't. First time you tell us the nurse. The second time when she passes away, oh, she has a name. Her name is Dvoira. The Ramban asks a big question on Rashi. He says, I don't understand. It's a long journey. Remember, it's before the days of cars and certainly before the days of aviation. There's no flying and there's no cars. You have to now travel from Eretz Yisrael, where Rivka lived, 
all the way to Iraq. It's a journey. By plane, it's not a long journey, but it's a journey. Rivka needs to send somebody to give a message to Yaakov. Why would she send this elderly lady who was older than her? She doesn't go herself. She sends a shlita. I'm saying, I don't understand. Why did, why did Rivka have to send this lady who was obviously much, much older? It's not even respectful. Find a shliach, find somebody who's younger, and send them. And he has to send, she, she sends a woman, not a man, which in those days especially, <clears throat> the way the culture, the pagan culture was, it could be very dangerous. And somebody of such seniority and such age, such ripe old age. So the Ramban suggests maybe a different story. He says, who says that Rivka's wet nurse stayed with her all these years? She accompanied Rivka on the journey. Maybe she stayed for a while, you know, to help her set up shop, right? You always need, if there's no shvigas and mama, so you need somebody to help you. So she helped her set up shop. She helped her set up the house. Maybe she stayed for a while. But ultimately, she went back to Mesopotamia. She went back to Chorum. So she was there a whole time when Yaakov came, years, years, years later, because Yaakov is Rivka's son. And remember, Yaakov is only born 20 years after Rivka gets married. So you can understand how old this lady was. Rivka could not have children for many years. It was only 20 years after the wedding that Rivka has children. R- Yaakov only leaves to Lovin's house at the age of 63. We see these calculations from the Chumash, because the Chumash gives us the years, the chronology. Rashi says it in a few places at the end of Toldos and other places. So Ramban says to say that Rivka took this lady and sent her to Choron at this point, and remember, Yaakov went when he was 63. He's 14 years in the yeshiva of Shema Neva, and he's by love in 20 years. So now Rivka sent this lady. Ramban says, no. This lady went back right away, or maybe at some point, And she was always there. That's how she ended up in the family. She was part of the family. Maybe, Ramban says, why did she leave now, stay there? Maybe she wanted to meet Rivka again. She missed Rivka. Her little, her little child that she nursed so many years ago. She wanted it. Her son is going to meet her. She also wants to go meet her. Maybe the Ramban says she was actually a tremendous helper in the house. She helped Yaakov and she helped Rachel and Leah and Bila and Zilpah. She raised all the children. So they're not just going to leave her. They're going. She's also going with them. The Ramban says, who even says it's the same nurse that they sent along with Rivka Teretzisro? Maybe this was another nurse of Rivka. He said aristocratic, uh, affluent families can have more than one wet nurse at those days, during those times. So maybe she always stayed. And maybe Yaakov now wanted to honor her in her old age and bring her with him to Yisrael to sustain her and support her and be there for her when she was older. And maybe she can also help his mother Rivka. These are different suggestions the Ramban offers to avoid Rashi's idea that Rivka sent this lady all the way from Eretz Yisrael, back to Mesopotamia, back to Charon, to tell Yaakov, it's time to go home, son. Time to come back to the Holy Land. But Rashi doesn't say that. Rashi says, this was the same nurse that went with Rivka to the Holy Land, and now was sent back by Rivka to bring back Yaakov. In Medrash, there's another twist to the story that makes it far more dramatic. Take a look in the next source, Medrash Agada. Uma Biksha Dvoire Itzel Yaakov. What was Dvoire looking for by Yaakov? Why is she by Yaakov? If she's really the wet nurse of Rifka, she should be in Israel, in the land of Canaan. 
Ella. Bishasham Lelifka Bishalachticha will a Kachticha Misham Lehoyer, Reutze, Yaakov, Lazus, me Eslava. Rivka promised him, I will send somebody to take you there. She did. She sent somebody. But Yaakov didn't want to go. His mother sent somebody. It's time to come home. He didn't want to move. Ma'asa Rivka. What should Rivka do? Her son doesn't want to leave Lava. Shigra Dvoira Eitzel Yaakov Lahavia. Dvoira was not the original Shlucha. Dvoira was the alternative because Yaakov was resisting. The Chiskuni, one of the great commentators on Chumash, says clearly, He didn't want to come. So Dvoira was sent and she had to spend time there to persuade him to leave. And she died on the road with Yaakov, coming back to Eretz Yisrael. The Chizkuni says, the first time around she's mentioned in history, accompanying, escorting Rivka to her marriage. Doesn't say her name. So here the Torah fills in the gap and also adds her name. Why did Yaakov not want to leave Lavan? Perhaps you could say he was afraid. Even later, he sends messengers to Esav, and when he hears that Esav is approaching him, it says that Yaakov is terribly, Yaakov is terribly scared and stressed, stressed and overwhelmed. He's frightened that he and his family will be obliterated in the beginning of Ayishlach, so perhaps he's afraid. I understand. But why did Rivka feel that this nurse of hers could somehow convince him and eliminate his fear and have him come. Or according to Rashi, why is she the one that Rivka feels she has to send to bring him back home? Now we come to the next step. Please hold this in your mind. Be'ezer Hashem will get back to it. Yaakov names this place Aloin Bachos. Very interesting. The tree of grief or the tree of tears. What type of name is that? The tree of tears, I mean, is the tree crying? They needed a place to bury her. They buried her under a tree. That would be her tombstone. By the way, there are various historians over the generations who have identified large, dramatic oak trees that throughout history were pointed to as this tree, alone Bachos, where Dvorah was buried. Whether it's mamish accurate or not accurate, I don't know, I'm not an expert in this, but I'm just telling you, if you, if you it's a very interesting study that was done over the generations. There were trees in the area of Bethel, because we know where ancient Bethel was. There's the modern Bethel that was built by Ketzeler, Rabbi Yaakov Katz. That's like two kilometers of the original biblical Bethel. And over there, there's some very interesting oak trees, one very large one that they have attributed for many generations. They say it was transmitted from generation to generation that this is the Aloin Bachas. But he calls the tree a tree of weeping. So our sages say there may be a different interpretation. Aloin in Greek means another, a second one, an additional one. Alon Bachas then means not just the tree, the oak of grief, but another grief. There is a second, second form of grief. And Rashi explains it to us. Rashi says the next one. Rashi vayishlach lamed heiches. Va'agada. There's an agada. Meaning a homiletic teaching of our sages. Nizbaser shom be'evel sheni shuhugad loyal imoy shemesa. At that moment, Yaakov heard another piece of news. His mother Rivka passed away. The Aloin in Greek language means another one. 
So the meaning, there's two reasons for grief, two reasons for sobbing. One is Rivka's nurse, and one is Rivka herself. Obviously, this raises a major question. The Torah dedicates a verse to describe her nurse's death, her nurse's burial, and not a word about Rivka's death and Rivka's burial. In fact, nowhere in the Torah does it say that Rivka passed away. Says Rashi, Ulefisha limu they concealed the day of her death. People should not curse the womb from where Esav emerged. So they hid the day of her death because that's the day everybody talks about the kinderlach, the family. So therefore the Torah too conceals it. The concealment of Rivka's death is a reflection of the reality of how she passed away. Now this is obviously a fascinating Rashi and a fascinating teaching. Rashi takes it from the Medrash. That the Torah does not speak of Rivka's death explicitly. In fact, the Medrash says that right after this Pasuk, the next Pasuk is, as we learned earlier, Pasuk Tes, Lamed Hei Tes. Hashem blessed Yaakov. Why? So the Medrash says, This was comforting the one in the, Yaakov who was in mourning for his mother. After Avram's death, it says Hashem blessed Yitzchak. That's back in Parshas Chayisara. Why? So Chazal say Hashem. It was like a shiva call, a nicham avelim to bless and give chizuk strength to Yitzchak. Here again, after Rivka's death, Yaakov is sitting shiva. Yaakov is in great mourning, not just for his nurse, but for his mother, for his mother's nurse, but for his mother herself, for his for his mother Rivka. So Hashem blesses him. Nicham avelim. The obvious question is, the Ramban says, Leah's death is also not recorded in the Torah. The Torah, we have a record of Sarah's passing, Rachel's passing, which is going to be the next story in Vayishlach, and her burial, and the tomb, the Matseva that Yaakov erects on her grave in Beit Lechem, till this very day. But we don't have a record, not of Rivka, we also don't have of Leah. So why suddenly by Rivka is it such a question? Many of the deaths in Torah are not recorded. Sorry, yeah, sorry with long elaboration. Rachel, yeah, but not Leah either. So the Ramban says it's different. Because here you see that the Torah does intimate that she passed away by using the word aloin, which in Greek means there's another form of weeping. So it's like you're intimating it, but in a hidden way. Besides the fact we see that Hashem blesses Yaakov afterwards, as we said, with Nechem Avelim. Besides the fact, Yaakov is going to come back to his father after this story, to Hebron, and it doesn't say he comes back to his mother, which is strange. She's the one who sent him away. When he comes back, the Torah should say he came back to his father and his mother, especially that she loved him so dearly, especially that she gave up so much for him. When he comes back, shouldn't it say he came back to his father and mother? It doesn't say. It says he came back to his father. Obviously, the mother wasn't there. So she passed away. So the Torah is showing us that she passed away already. And here it's intimated that this is the point. So Chazal say, so why not say it explicitly? The Chidah has a uh, sefer called Chayma Sanach, and he brings from Rabbeinu Ephraim that the words, it says, So he says, Meinekes Rivka is the numerology of the words, Af Rivka Meisa Also Rivka died the same day. 
You could do the math. Meinekes Rivka is the same numerical value as Af Rivka Mesa Baybayon. But it's through gematria. It's through hints. It's through remazim, through intimation. Why not explicit? So Rashi says, because they hid it. It was a hidden story. So nobody would say anything bad about Rivka. One second. But Yitzchak also was the father of Esau. And in this parasha soon, Yaakov comes home to Yitzchak. Yitzchak passes away and Esau buries him with Yaakov. Why is nobody going to curse Yitzchak? They could say the same derogatory words about Yitzchak. Why don't you hide Yitzchak's death? Why was Yitzchak's death public? The answer to this, the Medrash makes clear, the Ramban makes clear, many commentators make clear, is it was very different. Because when Rivka passed away, Yitzchak could not go to the funeral. Yitzchak could not be involved with her burial as Avram was with Sarah, because he couldn't see. And at that time he was confined in his home and he couldn't deal with it. Yaakov was far away. Yaakov was traveling back from Padan Aram Yisrael. He wasn't even there. So who would be the one and only family member to deal with Rivka? It would be Esau. When Yitzchak passed away, you had Yaakov and Esau and all the grandchildren. But when Rivka would pass away, it would be only Esau. Esau would run the show. That they did not want to happen for obvious reasons. So therefore, Rivka's death and burial were clandestine. That's the meaning of it. Because the only one who would deal with it would be Esau. There was nobody else around. The Ramban even adds, it could be that Esau didn't even show up for her funeral, or wouldn't, because he had a lot of issues with his mother Rivka. That's what the Ramban says. So that means nobody would be there. So who buried her? The Bnei Ches. Nobody in the family, literally alone, Bnei Ches, not Yitzchak, not Yaakov, not Esau. So the Torah decides, so the whole thing was done in a hidden way, in a clandestine way. So that's why what happened is reflected in the, in the Torah. The Torah shears that same dignity that Rivka's passing is hinted to, but only in a hinted fashion. This is how the Mepharshim explain it. When Yaakov hears about this, it creates tremendous grief, and we can understand. Rivka was the one who sent him away. Rivka was the one who wanted to save his life from Esau. Rivka was the one who told Yitzchak he's going to find a shidduch by her brother Lavan. Rivka is the one who got him to get the blessings. Rivka is the one who loved him very dearly. And now after all these years, he finally is coming home and he wants to meet Rivka and give her what we call nachas. Here are the results. Here you have 11 beautiful, 12 beautiful kindalach. With Dina, 13 beautiful kindalach. But Yaakov would never be able to do that. Because Rivka passed away. So there was a special sense of mourning and grief and loss that we can imagine exists in Yaakov's heart besides the fact that none of his wives, none of his children, the grandchildren would ever be able to meet Rivka even though they go and they meet Yitzchak. What happens right after this? Hashem blesses him and he changes his name from Yaakov to Yisrael. So there's a lot going on in this Pasuk, you see? <laughs> Looks like an innocent Pasuk. Dvaira died. She happened to be the nurse of Rivka. Yaakov buries her. There's a lot going on in this Pasuk. And it's a complete interruption, ostensibly, from the whole flow of the narrative. In order to spice up the dish, let's take it one step further. 
and ask ourselves, the name Dvoira, who else do we know as Dvoira? Very good. Dvoira is a very popular Jewish name, a beautiful Jewish name. I had a grandmother who was named, my father's grandmother's name was Dvoira Hoda. Dvoira Hoda. But we know in Tanakh, if we go to the book of Shoftim, Perik Dalid and Hey, we have that great personality in Jewish history called the Dvoira Hanaviyah, one of the prophets of the Jewish people, and the Shira of Dvoira, the song of Dvoira, is one of the most beautiful songs, inspiring songs in the whole of Tanakh. But there's something very strange about how Dvoira is introduced the first time. We now travel hundreds of years, Rivka passed away, Rivka's nurse Dvoira passed away, Yaakov comes back to Hebron, Ultimately, he would relocate to Egypt. The Jews would spend in Egypt 210 years. They would ultimately leave, come to Eretz Yisrael. And over the next few hundred years, they would be ruled by shaift and by judges. And in that period, hundreds of years after this story, we are introduced to another woman, a woman named Devoir. So take a look in your next source sheet. Shaift and Perik Dalit, Pasuk Dalit. Judges, chapter 4, verse 4. Udvoira isha nevia eshes lapidos yishoftes yisro beisahi. Dvoira is a prophet. She is the wife of a man named Lapidois. Chazal say Lapidois means a torch like Lapid. Her husband was very unlearned and illiterate and she used to weave wicks for him. He should take it to the Mishkan and they use it for the Menorah. And she wanted there should be light everywhere so she made Lapidois. It wasn't just thin little weak wicks but dense thick wicks that would generate intense light. That's just in commentary and parentheses how they explain Lapidus. He, She is the judge of the Jewish people at that time. Now these are strong words. Shaifta means she is the judge. She is the ruler. When there's a problem, when there's a dilemma, when there are challenges, when there are decisions to make, everybody is coming to Dvair. She sits under the palm tree. Toimer is, like the word tomorrow. Tomorrow are dates that grow on the palm. So she sits under the palm of Dvoira, the palm tree of Dvoira. Bein harama u bein beis el baharefrayim vayalowe lebne Yisrael mishpat. It's located between a place called Rama, a place called Betel, obviously in the Holy Land. And the Jewish people ascend to her for every mishpat, for all judgment, for decisions to be made. Chazal famously say, why under a palm tree? And they answered, because everybody came to her, including all of the Jewish men. So in order to maintain the modesty that Sneas, she didn't want to be in a home. People come with private questions and private issues and private dilemmas. So therefore, it was, in the, it was still private. Nobody came into the palm tree. But it was open in the field, in the orchard. That's why she sat under Toymet Verin, near between Ram and Betel. And the next scene, she summons Barak. Barak, who was a great Jewish leader at the time, and she says to him, you know, it's time to take some initiative. The story is that the Jewish people were being oppressed for 20 years by a Canaanite king called Yavin, the king of a place called, a tribe called, in a place called Chatzar. And he had his arch, his, his commander-in-chief was a man named Sisra. Sisra was one of the mightiest and scariest warriors of ancient times. He had... 900 chariots, 900 chariots, chariots that were fearsome. Chazal described his physical, awesome 
intense strength and how he treated his enemies with brutality and ruthlessness. And Sisra was the nightmare of the Jewish people. For 20 years, they were in constant fear and dread of the tyrants of the age. And Dvorah, the prophet, tells Barak, go to war. Take 10,000 people from the tribe of Naphtali, go to war. Barak doesn't want to. He's hesitant. He's scared. He's scared. So what does, she say? what does he say to her? Interesting, interesting answer. The answer may be familiar to some of you. Barak said, If you come with me, I'll go. If you don't come with me, I'm not going. So what does Dvorah say? She gives him a characteristic answer. I'll go with you. Ephes. However, No problem. But I hope it won't be too difficult for your ego when everybody is going to say that it was the woman who scored victory and it was the woman who defeated Sisra. God allowed Sisra to be surrendered into the hands of a woman. I'm happy to go with you. But remember, you're not going to be able to take the credit. It may be hard for you. If you're fine with it, but Barak is desperate. Without Dvorah's support, he can't do this. And he goes, and Dvorah comes with him. And we know the continuation of the story. They go to war. Sisra has and experiences an excruciatingly painful defeat. His people, his troops are killed. He himself runs. And he enters into the tent of another woman the wife of Hever Hakeni, who their family was close with the Sisra regime and he thinks she will offer protection. He is so exhausted, he is tired and he's thirsty. She famously gives him a lot of milk, he falls asleep, and in the midst of his sleep, she kills him. Sisra with a peg, a hammer and a peg. And then Dvoira sings this amazing shira. Shakamti Aimbi Yisrael, a mother of Israel, has arose. And the end of the Shira is, of course, about another woman, the mother of Sisra, who awaits in her home, standing by the window, waiting for the general, for her child to come back with all the booty. She turns to her friends, other women. Why is Sisra not back? She expects that her son would bring so much booty, a mother's hunch usually is often correct that something happened. The women say, no, he murdered so many Jews. There's so much booty. There's so much to collect. That's why it's taking time. But she, of course, knows better. And that's really how this shira ends. So it's interesting. At the surface, if somebody would look at the story from the surface, it's a story about men. Barak fighting Sisra and Yavin. When you read it in the Tanakh, you see that's on the surface. Behind the surface, it's completely about women. Dvoira was behind it. Sisra was killed by a woman. And Sisra's mother is who Dvoira decides to write about and sing about when she does the Shira of the war, even though Sisra's mother had nothing to do with it. She was back home waiting to give her son a nice dinner and enjoy some of the booty when he returned from war, as she always did so many times before. But here is now a question, it seems technical, but it's not so technical. 
The Tanakh identifies her and says, She sat under the palm tree of Dvoira. Who gave it this name? She gave it the name. She went under a palm tree and she said, Okay, sign, I understand after her life, they would name it Toyma Dvoira. This is the palm of Dvoira. In fact, there's a very famous book of Jewish ethics called Toyma Dvoira by Rabbeinu Moshe Kordevero, the Ramak. He was one of the greatest Kabbalists. He lived in Svas in the 1500s. He's buried in the old cemetery in Svas, right near the Arizal, who was a student. He passed away 1570 in Tammuz, of Gimel Tammuz. He wrote a sefer on Muster ethics called Toyma Dvoira, the palm tree of Dvoira, where he explains how you can apply the 13 attributes of compassion in your own life so that your attributes mirror Hashem's attributes. It's a fascinating, extraordinary book. So I understand after her lifetime, we point to that palm tree and we say, that's the palm tree of Dvoira. But the Tanakh says she was sitting under Taimah Dvoira. Who gave it that name? She gave it the name. This is Taimah Dvoira. So the Das Kenim, take a look in your next source. The Das Kenim says something quite fascinating. When it says by Dvoira that she sat under the palm tree of Dvoira, you know which Dvoira that is? It's not her. It's another Dvoira. She was sitting under that tree. Aloin from the word Elon. You could translate, they usually translate it as an oak, but maybe it was a palm. It was an Elon. That was the palm of Dvoira. But it's interesting. In our parsha, it's called Aloin. Over there, it's called Toimer, a palm. But it's the same tree. That's why it was Toimer Dvoira. Remember, this is the tree where Yaakov buried Dvoira, Rivka's nurse, and it was a significant story. He gave it a name, Aloin Bachos. The Torah decides to write about it. It's where he grieved for his mother, Rivka. This was a location. This was a region that was known. People pointed to it. That's where Dvoira decided to become the Shefetis to judge and lead and inspire the Jewish people, including where she sent her message from where she sent the message to Barak to fight Sisra. Paneach Raza says, Vatomas Dvoira, Zoshomer Akosavi Yeshevis Tachas Doim, Toyme Dvoira, Kaloimar, Tachas Ha'ilon Shekvura Sham Dvoira. Murenu Haravreb Ahre. She was sitting by the tree where Dvoira was buried under that tree by Yaakov Avinu hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. And now I ask you, what is the connection? It's nice, Dvoira, Dvoira. Whether we say that it means physically, she simply chose that tree and that's where she spent her days. Or the Chazal and Medrash are, are connecting it symbolically. What in the world is the connection? Besides the name Dvoira, what was their point? What is the relationship, the link between these two events, these two stories that seem completely remote from each other on every level? This is the nurse of Rivka, who happened to be sent to bring Yaakov back. This is a woman, a prophet, a Jewess, who's leading the Jewish people hundreds of years later. But she chooses that same place. You mind if I put in one more spice? One more spice. We now go to the world of Kabbalah. There's a sefer called Gilgulei Neshamais, reincarnation of souls that was written by a man named Ramemi Fanu, Rabbeinu Menachem Azaria of Fanu, Italy. He lived in the 17th century. He was a student from the students of the Arizal, 
whom I just mentioned, part of the group of Kabbalists in Svas in the 1500s, and he has a sefer about reincarnations based on the teachings of the Arizal. And here is what he writes. Tamar Hidvaira. The soul of Tamar, who we're going to learn about in next week's portion, Vayeshev, that soul was reincarnated into Dvaira the prophetess. V'simen, here is the simen. Tachas toime Dvaira chaserksiv. When it says in Tanakh, in Judges 4, that Dvoira sat under the palm tree of Dvoira, Toimer is spelled with a vav, but in the Tanakh it's without a vav. So it could be read as Tamar Dvoira. Tamar is Dvoira. V'sham hoysa yoshevas. You know why Dvoira used to sit there? Says Darizal, L'sakein mashayoshva bepesach heinayim v'yachshaveha l'zayna. Remember, why did Yehuda think that Tamar is, a, so to speak, uh, an immoral woman, a Zaina. Why did he think so? So the Torah says, because she was sitting, she dressed up, she camouflaged herself, so nobody recognized who she is. She sat at an open road, at an open place, an exposed place. Yehuda naturally thought that she is an immoral woman. She summoned Yehuda, he summoned her, and the continuation of the story says Darizal, that soul was reincarnated, her soul was reincarnated into Dvair. So she sat by Tamar Dvair, because she is Tamar, and this was the continuation of that story. Tamar sat there, he doesn't say Tamar sat there, but Tamar sat in an open place, but it was perceived as a sign of immorality. Dvair would also sit in an open place, this time in a very manifested way as a spiritual sage and leader and prophet of God, inspiring, speaking, advising and guiding and mentoring the Jewish people. And here again, what's the connection between Tamar and Taimedvar besides the fact that Tamar is spelled without a vav? So Avram's servant, Eliezer, is looking for a match for Yitzchak. It's not just a regular match. This is the future of the Jewish people. Avram and Sarah were barren for most of their life. At the age of 90, Sarah has a child. She didn't believe she would. She has one and only one. Yishmael is not a natural heir of Avram Avinu, even though he's biologically a child through Hagar. And now Yitzchak is 40 years old, and he does not have a future at the moment. He's not married. He was almost died at the Akedah. And this is when Avram tells his servant, I need you to go and find the appropriate woman who would become the matriarch of the Jewish people. Sarah passed away, his wife Sarah passed away. And this would be the future of Klal Yisrael, the future of the Jewish people. We know the story, Eliezer travels... He finds Rivka at the well, but the family is ambivalent. The one who decides she has to go is Rivka. When they ask her, do you want to go? Naturally, we would think, whether she's three years old or 13 years old, the natural inclination would be, not yet, let me stay home. But Rivka obviously feels in her bones that this is her destiny. This is the ultimate journey that will be. The greatest thing for her and for her future. And Rivka goes. Eilich. We all know the Medrash says in the Shir Hashirim, in the Song of Songs, is a famous Pasuk. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the other women. Says the Medrash that this refers to Rivka. Rivka was the Shoshana, the lily, among thorns. And Eliezer, the servant of Avram, is trying to extract her. And he does, he extracts a lily from many thorns, psuel and lovin and the whole environment which was steeped in 
pagan idolatry, as the Midrashim and the commentators explain. But Rivka doesn't go alone. Somehow everybody, they know, the family knows, Vayeshalchu, when they send Rivka, as we did in the original Psukim, they send her, Vayeshalchu as Rivka, Chaisem ve'esmei nikta. There's a woman who's sent with her. Targum Yonasim ben says, not just a technical nurse, which is not so technical, nursing a child is not technical, I don't mean it in that sense, but it means she wasn't only doing a physical job of giving this special girl the nutrients and the milk that she needed. But as the Targum Yonasim says, she was a pedagogue. She was a mentor. She was a teacher. Somehow Rifka needs her to be at her side. This is perhaps the person who recognizes the lily among the thorns. The one who identifies the Shoshana Ben HaChuchim and nurses her not just physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. This is Rivka's attachment. This is Rivka's connection. This is somebody who not only believes in Rivka, but somebody who helped mold and craft Rivka. Remember, nursing in Tanakh is never seen as a technical thing. Till today, it's not a technical thing. It really represents those deepest emotional connections and relationships. Besides the fact that the milk of a mother is how God created nature to give a growing infant the amazing nutrients it needs. Besides the fact, the bonding that is created on an emotional level, what we call today the attachment versus detachment, is so vital and fundamental to the life of a child. Maybe one of the most fundamental things to the life of a child, their attachment in earliest months and earliest years to their primary caretakers. Today, cutting-edge psychology is about how we suffer from the lack of attachment during those primal moments in our life when the attachment that we desperately needed might have not been there. Maybe there was physical attachment. We had shelter and food but not the emotional attachment. A child needs the four S's to be heard, to be seen, and to be soothed, and to be secure and safe. <laughs> Later, Leah would name her children with these names. Reuven, the first thing a child needs is to be seen. Shimon, a child needs to be heard. Levi, a child needs attachment. Levi means connected. He love her. Yehuda, child has to feel that you're grateful for their existence. That ultimate deep love and acceptance. Those are the first four children that Leah would bring into the Jewish people before the other children who have their own names. Every child needs to be seen and heard and feel attachment and feel that you're grateful for them. We can end the class now, no? <laughs> You never end. This is infinity. We don't end. Now Rivka is leaving. She doesn't have her family with her. And in many ways, they couldn't even be there for her when you have a lily among thorns. It's a different type of soul, different type of priorities. But this Meinekes Rivka is her pedagogue. If Rivka is the matriarch of the Jewish people, so the pedagogue of Rivka must have had some, some soul some mind, some great qualities. She will be there at her side. She will remind her who she is. She will stay connected to her. And not just a few years later, years, years, years later, you're talking about decades, a century later, the Torah will still call her the nurse of Rivka. 
you might say it's a little disrespectful. Imagine you turn to your 100-year-old grandmother, right? You, you turn to a woman who's very old. And say, By the way, she was the nurse of your Baba. At this point, at this point you would think, Rivka is much older, she's much older, but till the end, her death, she's identified as the nurse of Rivka. Obviously, this was no small event, but rather this is this person. She had that ability to be the pidguga, in the words of the Targum Yonasa, the mentor, the one who raised her physically, emotionally, psychologically and spiritually as she leaves her environment and has to embark on a completely new life without family, without physical family attachment. And of course, as she's leaving, the blessing is given to her. And we see it's not just a blessing, you could say it's love one's blessing, it's a ridiculous blessing. The blessing makes it into Torah, and the blessing becomes a blessing that's still today given to Jewish brides by the Badekinesh. When they bless Rivka and they say to her, O sister, our sister, may you grow into thousands of myriads and may your offspring seize the gates of their foes. What's the significance of this blessing? First of all, it's a blessing about Rivka. May you become that progenitor of Alfei Revova. But there's always something else. When it says your descendants shall seize, shall inherit the gates of their foes, Shar Sainov. It doesn't only mean literally they should go and conquer the cities of their enemies, so they will conquer and seize the gates of their foes. If Rivka is a little girl, why are we right now talking about all the wars that her descendants are going to have? It's interesting though, that if Lovin is giving this blessing, most people when they give a blessing, it's a blessing about today, tomorrow. Some people talk about after tomorrow. If your mamish have vision, you talk about six months. And if you're a gigantic, extraordinary visionary, you talk about two years. But you see how people thought, even Lovan and Psua, who were not considered the holiest, how they thought about life and history. They're not even talking about tomorrow. You can't become thousands and myriads in a day, a week, a decade, even a century. Their blessing was, But the truth is, Sainov is not just enemies from without. There's also enemies from within. We all have internal enemies representing the obstacles that obstruct our energy, that obstruct our creativity, that deplete us from our potential, that make us exhausted and tired. And their blessing, Rivka, that your descendants shall have that ability to be able to seize the portal of the enemies. In other words, to be able to seize and inherit and control it. So not only though their inner enemies not defeat them, but to the contrary. Isn't Shoshana a rose? Why did I translate it as lily? It's a good question. It's a great question. Yeah, Shoshana is a rose, but actually, I remembered the expression lilies among thorns. So I, I went to Safaria this morning, and I went to that verse in Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, chapter 2, and I see the translation like a lily among the thorns. So I... Uh, I pass on the question to safaria.com. Lilies don't have thorns, okay? I hear you. Arroyos, okay. Razel, Razel. Thank you. I could say I stand corrected. I don't have the right to say safaria stands corrected. They will have to do it on their own. 
Now this mentor of Rivka hears all of this, and she's the escort. She's standing at her side. She's her teacher, she's her guide. But as life begins, she sees it's not so rosy, or lily, pun intended. It's not going so simple. Of course she marries Yitzchak. She gets to meet Avram Avinu. Sarah already passed away. It says Yitzchak loved her and cherishes her. But Rivka is an Akara. Rivka can't have a child. It takes 20 years until Rivka will become pregnant. The pregnancy, as we know, is very tumultuous. And finally the twins are born, Yaakov and Esav. But even at this point, the nurse of Rivka sees that things are far from simple. That blessing, may you grow into thousands and myriads, doesn't seem like it's going to materialize, at least not in the near future. Esau is completely on his own journey. Yaakov, at the age of 63, is still not married. He got the blessings from his father, which Rivka initiated, but now Esau wants to kill him. So the wet nurse of Rivka, the nurse of Rivka, the pedagogue of Rivka, watches Rivka calling in Yaakov and saying, run, run for your life because your brother is going to kill you. So now Yaakov at 63 is not married, doesn't have a child. Rivka is now alone with Yitzchak. They have no other child besides Esau who chose a different path in life. But this Meinekes of Rivka still remains that pedagogue. She still remains that mentor. So Rivka doesn't have doubts. Rivka is confident of the blessing. Rivka remembers Rivka knows what Avraham was speaking about and he, she knows what Hashem promised Avraham Avinu. And Rivka tells Yaakov, go, you'll come back, things will be fine. Yaakov is there for 20 years. The number 20 is significant. He tells Lovan, Esrim because later, Dvoira, when she sends a message to Barak, the Torah Tanakh makes sure to point out one verse before that they were oppressed for 20 years. 20 years they suffered under the tyranny of Sisra and under the tyranny of Yavin, the king of Chatzar. Yaakov Avinu is afraid. Even when Yaakov Avinu starts coming back, he comes back to Eretz Yisrael. He even reconciled with Esau. Everything is working out. Hashem said, I'll be with you. I'm going to protect you. He's coming back. He has children. The future is beginning to develop. Things are rosy at this point, it seems. Suddenly, he encounters the story of Shechem. His own daughter, his one daughter, is abducted and violated. His son Shimon and Levi destroy Shechem. And if you look in the next source, what does Yaakov tell them? Yaakov says, Yaakov tells Shimon and Levi, you have made me, means you have made me seem repulsive and disgusting among all the inhabitants of this land, the Knanim and the prison. And we have small number, we are a small family. What's going to happen is, they will all assemble together, smite me and me and the whole family will be obliterated. Before this family can even begin developing into a nation, we will already be experiencing our own demise. They will write our obituary. 
This is the feeling that Yaakov is experiencing after he left Lava and he made it out. After he already transcended the fear with Esau. Esau hugged him and kissed him. Now this new tsar, Tsaras Dina, and now this, Yaakov says, there's no hope. It's not even one enemy anymore. When they see what happened with Shechem, this is what he says to Shimon and Levi. When they see what happened to Shechem, they will not allow us, not allow us to live. The Ramban brings from Sefer Ayashar that at this point Yaakov was engaged in many wars. This wasn't just a futile fear. They came to declare war on Yaakov and his family and this was what he was afraid of. Now Shimon and Levi respond and say, We can't allow our sister to be treated this way. Got it. But Yaakov says, look at the results. The results is there won't be a family left. We will be destroyed. When Yaakov is by Lavan, and Rivka sends the first messenger to bring him back, he doesn't want to go. There's a lot of fear. So the Medrash says, who does she decide to send? Who is she going to send to help Yaakov get out of that comfort zone by Lavan, come back to settle his own land, despite the challenges? So Rivka has to choose somebody. Who is she going to choose? So she chooses the person who stirred by her side as her pedagogue, watching all those long, lonely years, years filled with doubt and uncertainty and fear. But this human being, who she always called her nurse, her teacher, her pedagogue, she can go to Yaakov. And she will serve as an eternal link between a previous generation and telling Yaakov, I was there. <laughs> When Rivka, your mother, heard those words, Yaakov, don't be afraid. You can do it. We will do it. This is who Rivka sends. Rashi doesn't say this point that Yaakov was afraid to leave. But Rashi also says that Rivka sent her. Why did she send her? Now we can understand why she sent her. Because this journey, which will be complicated and complex, Rivka knew just like she had somebody on her side. When she was a very little girl, Yaakov, who had a bunch of little children, will also perhaps need that person to be able to encourage him, to motivate him, to tell him that you could come back to the land. It's time for you to settle your eternal homeland. The fact is, as it's brought in Svarim and Kabbalah and Chesidus, that women have a koyach a power of deep, innate organic faith and resilience that often men don't have in such a manifested way. She did it with Rivka and she will now be able to do it with Yaakov. We see it, by the way, a little later in history with Miriam. We once gave a long class about this. Amram separates from his wife Yecheved because Parai is killing all the children and it's Miriam who tells her father, you're worse than Parai. Parai made a decree for the males, you made a decree for the females, Parai will die one day, your decree will last. Parai is a Russia, you're a Jew. Parai is killing them in Elam Haza, you're not even allowing Jews to be born. She convinces her father to remarry her mother. She is the one who says, that we're going to have a child who will redeem the Jewish people. And then the child is born. <coughs> and Yocheved has to put him in denial in a basket. Because he's not going to survive, they're going to cast him into the river. Now what are the chances a baby is going to survive in a basket in the Nile Delta? Either he'll starve, he'll die from thirst, 
the basket will capsize or an Egyptian will come and just drown the baby like they did every other Jewish baby. And that's when Amram, it says, she, he gave Miriam she gave Miriam a smack and says, where's your prophecy? I remarried your mother and everybody remarried their woman because of you, six-year-old girl, what happened? But what does Miriam do? She goes, She stands there. She stands there. Does she know how it's going to work out? She doesn't know how it's going to work out. But she stands there with deep commitment, deep vision, deep faith, and Muna resilience. And of course, when the daughter of Pare comes and retrieves the basket and takes out the baby, Miriam says, should I go find somebody to nurse? Here again, we come to the next Meinika. And Basia says, of course, and she brings mommy the mommy of Moshe Rabbeinu, Basya probably understood. She made believe she doesn't know. You could see it from the Chumash, the inner tension over there. And Moshe still has his attachment with his mother. And that's why we understand why after the sea splits and everybody has a song, Shiras Miriam, it's Mir- at the Shira of the Jewish people, Miriam says she has to sing a song. She is the one who gives the grand finale of the Shira. Why her? Because she is the one who was there from the beginning before Moshe was born. She stood, she was there at everybody's side at moments of crisis. Saying, I don't know how it's going to work out, but it's going to work out. And now when it worked out, the Jews crossed the sea, the Egyptians were drowned. At last, they were free. It's Miriam who can really sing the song of appreciation, of gratitude. It's Miriam who Moshe understood really gets the credit for this. It's Miriam who can reap the harvest of all those years of tears and suffering, because Miriam comes from the word mar, bitterness, but also has within it the word merim, to uplift, and the word mayim, of course, water inside. Water inside the word, inside the word Miriam. So Yaakov, generations earlier, may not want to come back. He's like, I'm here by love on... Leave me alone, I'm a shepherd, I'm doing my thing. He's paying my job, I have kids... Let's not go anywhere. We can understand. Yaakov had enough. But she's going to remind him who he is. Yaakov, you're not just a shepherd made to work for somebody else to be tricked and oppressed by your father-in-law, loved one who doesn't want you. There's a destiny. She is that inner voice in Yaakov's neshama. That voice that was never ever silenced because it was there all the way from the beginning. Spiritually it was there from the beginning to remind Yaakov Avinu who he is. And now when he's frightened because of what happened in Shechem, she is there to encourage him, to inspire him, to be that pedagogue to him, just as he, she was for his mother. Just looking at her must have reminded Yaakov of his whole story. It's a story of Avram, it's a story of Yitzchak, it's a story of Sarah, it's a story of Rivka. None of them could have children, but they're here today. Generations pass. The Jews are in Eretz Yisrael. They don't have a king. They don't have peace. They're completely oppressed by Sisra. 20 years, they don't have a moment of serenity. All they could think of is, how do we send the next bribe, the next sacrifice to silence Sisra so that he just lets us live and breathe under his tyranny? And who is the one who sends a message to Barak? You have to reclaim your destiny. The Jewish people are not made to be oppressed for eternity, to live in constant fear. It's that same Dvoira, that same spirit, who goes and inspires Barak and says, 
You have to believe in your destiny. You have to believe in our vocation, in our shlichus, in our mission, in our past, in our present, and in our future. How do they do it? Their name is Dvaira. The first time around, the name doesn't tell the story because it's just the beginning. But the second time around, when she passes away, she finished her mission. Now we have to know her name. Her name is Dvaira. We all know about the Dvaira. The Dvaira is a bee. You don't want to get into a fight with a bee. The bee bites. The bee stings. And the sting is painful. But the bee also produces the sweetest of all foods, which is of course the honey. Eretz Yisrael is dietal Eretz Zavaz Chalavadvash, the land that flows with milk and honey. The power of the Dvairas in the world is that even when people, when they experience a sting, and it's so easy to run, but Dvairas says, no, don't run, don't flee, don't despair. Don't surrender to depression and sadness. You can turn this thing into a catalyst for honey, for a new light, for a new awareness, for a new sweetness. What is more, halachically, it's problematic because we have a principle, I'm not going to drink the milk that comes from a pig. Why? Because anything that comes from a non-kosher animal, you're not going to eat an egg from a non-kosher bird. You're not allowed to eat that egg. A chicken's egg I can eat. But something. What's, what's the problem with an egg? An egg is kosher. No. Depends where the egg comes from. I ask you, is somebody allowed to eat a bee? Anybody knows? A bee. I know it's not on the menu, but theoretically. No. A bee is a, is, is a tray for creature. It's not kosher. So how can you eat the bee's honey? It's a problem. Talmud describes, how are we eating a bee's honey? It's yoytzim in And Chazal struggle with this. They struggle. But that's the Kiddush of the bee, one of the sources. Today we know it in science, fascinating that they say that the honey doesn't come from the bee. The bee eats nectar from the flowers, and then it has enzymes that transforms the nectar into the honey that she then puts into the honey hive. So Chazal explained that this is not called coming out of her body, Fascinating how it works scientifically. But that's the concept of a bee. The same problem we have with milk, by the way. Because milk is Avram and Achai. You milk a cow, the cow is alive. You're not allowed to eat a part of an animal when it's alive. It's called Avram and Achai. How are we allowed to drink milk? Not only that, milk, the Gemara says, milk biochemically is a transformation from blood. You're not allowed to eat blood either. And how do we know you're allowed to eat milk? Because Eretz Yisrael is called Eretz Zavas Cholavadvash. It flows with milk and honey. So the Torah says you're allowed to drink milk because that's Eretz Yisrael. So you see, you're allowed to drink milk. So honey and milk, Zavas Chalavodvash, have this ability, the transformation. Milk should be Tameh, milk should be Asr, Evim and Achai, coming from blood, but nonetheless it's permissible. And honey as well, coming from the bee, which is Tameh, and it's a sting, which is Tumah, impurity, and it stings. Nonetheless, it becomes kosher, it becomes permissible, it becomes our honey cake, our lekach, the sweetest delicacy in food. What does this really mean? When Dvaira is standing there by Rivka's side, Rivka is a rose among thorns. That's like the honey stored in the bee. 
Rivka is in a place of impurity, but the Dvorah manages to extricate her from that. Just as the bee itself extricates the honey from itself, which becomes kosher. She also nurses Rivka with milk. Milk too is that food that essentially should be forbidden, and nonetheless it represents transformation. The Pasuk says, Milk and honey under your tongue. And therefore, it's the Dvairas who have that tenacious resilience that even when the Jewish people are experiencing the stings of history, they say, do not surrender, do not give up. You have to be able to know that inside this very bee, there's an opportunity for tremendous growth, tremendous sweetness, tremendous blessing, tremendous light. And she convinces Yaakov to come back to Eretz Yisrael, which is the land that flows with milk and honey. Dvoira brings honey, produces honey, and she is the one who gave Yaakov Avinu milk. It's the later second Dvoira who convinces Barak to allow the Jews to live in Eretz Yisrael in peace, the land that flows with milk and honey. Her name is Dvoira. And Sisra, of course, is killed through milk. So Rivka's nurse nurses her with milk. Her name is connected to honey. The second Dvoira, of course, her name is connected to honey. And Sisra is killed through the milk that another woman gives him, the wife of Hever Hakeni. Something else happens. The Gemara says in Nazir that uh, it says seven times that Sisra kneeled in the presence of the wife of Hever Hakeni who killed him. And Chazal learned out from this that the only way this happened was because she experienced intimacy with Sisra seven times. And they derive it from the Psukim. The Gemara says in Sanhedrin, Sadiq Vav, many versions, shal Sisra lamdu umanu Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was a descendant of Sisra. The Megala Amukah says that the relationship between the wife of Hever Hakeni, Yael, and Sisra was the seed that produced generations later Rabbi Akiva. So here you have the ultimate sting, the ultimate Russia, and from there emerged the ultimate honey. Rabbi Akiva, who of course is the same letters like Yaakov, and Arizal says he himself was a reincarnation of Yaakov, just like Rabbi Akiva's wife was Rachel, who was a reincarnation of Yaakov's wife, Rachel, that Karis Habayas. So in this story of Sistra being defeated, a new soul emerges, the soul of Rabbi Akiva. Dvoira passes away. Yaakov buries her. Yaakov settles in Hebron. Time passes. But there's no serenity. There's no Atayil Alfei Revava. Yosef is sold into slavery. The brothers are splintered. Yehuda is sent away from the brothers. He finally marries. He has three sons, Eir, Oinan, Shela. Eir marries Tamar. Eir dies. Oinan marries Tamar. Oinan dies. Yehuda will not give his daughter-in-law to his third son because he blames her for the death of his children. He doesn't know the truth. And therefore Tamar is now left alone. 
bound to the third child in leveret marriage, Yibum, but nonetheless can't because Yehuda doesn't want his third son to marry Tamar. At this moment, if somebody was Tamar, looking at this scene, it's time to say, you know, I tried very hard, let me move on. It's time to move on with life. But Tamar, who according to the Arizal, has that soul of Dvoira, or Dvoira has that soul of Tamar, understands that something else has to happen. And here, take a look at the last source. Bereshis Rabbah Pehe Aleph. Vayihi Be'esahi. At that time, Yehuda left his brothers. They actually demoted him. Reb Shmuel Bar Nachman Pasach, Anoichi Adatiyah Samach Shavas. Reb Shmuel quotes a Pasach in Yirmiya 29. God says, I know all the thoughts. I know all the schemes. Shvatim Hayu Asukim B'mechiras Yishal Yosef. The brothers were busy selling their brother Yosef. Yosef Hayu Asuk B'saki B'tanisa. Yosef was busy fasting. He was with his sack and his fasting. Yosef. Trying to figure out his own life and mending his past. Reuven Reuven was busy fasting because what he did with his father and Billy, he took his father's bed out of Billah's tent and put it into Leah's tent. He interfered into Yaakov's private life, for which Yaakov was very upset. So he's fasting. Yaakov is busy fasting and mourning because he lost his son Yosef, who was apparently devoured by an animal. And Yehuda was busy trying to get married. You hear what's happening? This is the scene. Everybody is doing their own thing. Yaakov is grieving. He misses his son Yosef. Of course, reminds him of the death of Rachel, his beloved wife. Yosef is fasting and grieving. He lost his father. He lost his family. Reuven is fasting and grieving because of a sin that he did years earlier, nine years earlier, after Rachel died. The Shvatim despise their brother and they're busy selling him into slavery. They don't want to have him anymore. And Yehuda says, I need to get married. And the Medrash continues, Vakadish Baruch and what was Hashem doing? He was busy creating the light of Mashiach. Because when Yehuda was with Tamar, Tamar conceived two children, Peretz and Zarech, and Peretz, of course, would be the great-great-great-grandfather of Bayas, who would be the father of Ovid, who would be the father of Yishe, who would be the father of David, who would be the father of Shlomo, of Shlomo HaMelech. And of course, that would be the dynasty of Jewish royalty and Mashiach. But who did he create this light of Mashiach through? Through Tamar. Through Tamar. The soul of Dvoira. Tamar could have easily left. This was a failing proposition on every single level. Her husband died. Her second husband died. Her father-in-law put her in an impossible situation. She couldn't be free because she was bound up to Shayla. He would not give her to Shayla. This was a dismal failure on every level, moral, psychological, never mind the grief and the pain and the emotions and the sense of betrayal. But Tamar had that ability to be able to know the Achayseinu Atheila Alfei Revava, to be able to remain tenaciously connected to the big picture. She had the long-term vision of history to know. That the momentary distress, pain, grief, disappointment, setbacks, failures, frustration, the terrible, terrible grief that exists in the world, even though one sobs and one experiences it and one is in pain by it, never ever allow it to deter you from the achayseinu ateyila alfei revava v'yirish zarech the ability to be able to be a moral leader 
with unwavering clarity, resilience, tenacious strength, unwavering commitment and dedication to your ultimate goal, to your ultimate destiny. And Tamar has to really engage in acts that are quite brazen and unconventional. But the light of Mashiach was created that moment. The light of eternity, the light of ultimate Geula, when the oneness of all of history comes together when the deeper destiny that really pervades every moment of life can be manifested in the most exquisite and divine way. Because what is Geula? Geula, it says in Medrash, is Geula with an Aleph. It's interesting. The word for exile is Geula. The word for redemption is Geula. It's exactly the same words. Geula, Geula. The difference is, in Geula, it's an Aleph. There's an Aleph, which means it doesn't take you away from exile. It reveals the Aleph in the Geula. The oneness, Echad, Hashem Echad, in the Geula. Geula is that one could look at life, but instead of seeing it as fragmented, as detached, a detached series of events, some exciting, some sad, some exhilarating, some that break us, some that build us, some that destroy us, some that we dance at, some that we cry at. There's vicissitudes the fluctuations of life. There's an olive, there's a oneness that's pervasive. Doesn't mean it makes sense. Miriam doesn't know how it's going to work out. The nurse of Rivka doesn't know how it's going to work out. Dvairi the prophetess may not know, and Tamar certainly doesn't know how it's working out. But Tamar knows Yehuda is busy getting married, and this one is busy crying, and this one is busy fasting. And in all that, and from all that, from all that, from that goy Hashem is creating a light of Geula, a light of Mashiach. Tamar sees it, Tamar feels it, Tamar feels it in her bones. And she is the one who initiates the process. She can't tell Yehuda. It's like what we spoke last week with Rachel and Leah. Some things, if you tell people what's going to happen, they're going to run away. If you tell Yaakov it's time to marry Leah, I can't. It's not for me. Tamar knows she can't tell Yehuda everything. Because Yehuda was not ready to have, in a revealed way, the light of Mashiach. Tamar could be aware of it. Yehuda had to be unconscious in the process. Just as generations earlier, with Light and his daughters, Light had to be drunk. The daughters knew what they were doing. Light didn't know what's happening. He was drunk. But that's when the light of Mayav was created, and Mayav would be the grandfather of Rus, who would marry Boyaz, who was the grandson of Peretz, who was the son of Tamar and Yehuda. And later, Rus and Boyaz, Boyaz also won't know what hit him. In the middle of the night when Rus appears. Rus knows exactly what she's doing. Naomi knows exactly what she's doing, but not Boyaz. He's caught by surprise. By Yelafes, he's trembling. Just as Yehuda is caught by surprise. And later, what happened with David and his wife. Why? Because when such lights are coming into the world, my brain often resists it. I can't, it's too much. Let's let me sit on my couch, let other people change the world. But the dvairis of the world, who know that within the sting, there is also powerful, powerful honey, who know that even that which looks like tuma, a bee, ultimately produces that which is amazingly kosher and sweet and delicious. She can create the light of Mashiach during that very difficult and unpredictable moment. And if I may make this relevant to everyone sitting here or listening now or later, how many of your mothers or your grandmothers 
or your great-grandmothers stood at the gates of Auschwitz on January 27, 1945, and they walked out of a death camp with this sign, Arbet macht frei, work will set you free. And they knew that they lost everybody and everything. Mothers and fathers and siblings, nephews, nieces, sometimes spouses, sometimes their own first families. They could not even conceive how anything will work out, how life can be rebuilt. In fact, if somebody could conceive it, you wouldn't call them human. They were stripped from everything, physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. And you all know I'm using words that don't really capture the depth of their experiences, of their of their life, of what they went through. Because no quill, no pen, and no mouth as blessed and talented as it may be can capture on paper or through the greatest oratory skills the unfathomable grief and pain and sadness and the insanity of it all in just a few short years between 1939 and 1945. But I think you all know that all these women your mothers, grandmothers, great-grandmothers, heard somewhere in the depth of their souls those words, Sisters, you will grow into thousands and myriads. They heard it. They heard it in every bone of their body. They heard it with every fiber of their being. They heard it in the depth of their souls. Did they understand it? Absolutely not. Did they know how it's going to happen? Absolutely not. Could they wrap their brain around their past and their future? Absolutely not. They could not. But everyone sitting here, I think most of us sitting here in this room, or wherever you are around the world, are the products, are the blessings, are the offsprings of that entire generation of women who the day that they stood at those cursed gates, Shar Seinov, Seinov, easily could have surrendered to endless despair and resignation, which would have been very human and very normal. But they had that soul and that vision of Achisenu Atayila Alfei Revava. And today, 75 years later, literally 75 years later, a nation was reborn. A nation experienced rejuvenation and renaissance. So that's why by so many weddings we go over to the bride. And when the bride is covered by her chassan, And we say, you know, life sometimes is filled with covers. Life is filled with concealments. Rivka's face was concealed, and often life is filled with concealments. The word oilam comes from the word helam. There are setbacks, there are failures, there are things that conceal our light, Hashem's light, the light of our children, the light of our loved ones, the light of our spouses, the light of friends. Life is challenging. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place that's antithetical to light and clarity. We feel our vision is eclipsed, our eyes are eclipsed. And at that moment we tell the bride, quoting those words that were told to Rivka on that fateful day. And the one person who heard those words, and who never allowed Rivka to forget those words, and never allowed Rivka to ignore those words, and never allowed Rivka to feel that those words will not be a reality. That Meinekes of Rivka, that Vaira, who was there from the beginning, remained throughout, and at pointed junctures, 
when things seemed to go down south and fail, she was there to not only maintain the faith, but to make sure that the joy and the gusto of the eternity of Netzach Yisrael of Jewish history to ultimately heal the world and reveal the oneness of Hashem in the entire universe will be maintained with the greatest passion and commitment and resilience. So as Yaakov is now coming full circle, 20 years, he ran away. Things were not looking good. His brother wanted to kill him. Rivka did not know how it's going to work out. Rivka's pedagogue didn't know how it's going to work out. But she knew it will work out. 20 years later, Yaakov is coming back to Bethel, the same place where he had that dream 20 years earlier, afraid, distressed, overwhelmed, alone in the world. The Medrash says, that's when Yaakov said, Shiramalas, Esa I look up to my parents, Hirim, may I in where can I ever find help? We spoke about this a few years ago, right before Corona. And now he escapes and he's coming back. He left with a stick. And now he came back with a complete family. But with a lot of challenges, with a lot of distress, with a lot of fear. And then the story with Dina, which of course is probably one of the worst things that can happen to a family. Some of you understand very well what I'm saying. And now the journey is coming close to its end. That stage of the journey is being completed. Yaakov is coming back home full circle to be with his father and he hopes his mother again. At this point, exactly at this point, Yaakov is coming back to Bethel. He's frightened because of Shechem. But it says that Hashem, the fear of Hashem was on those inhabitants. He's coming back to Bethel. So the Torah says, we have to put in one more Pasuk here. It's exactly where it belongs. And the Pasuk is about that one person who clandestinely stood at Rivka's side, at Yitzchak's side, at Yaakov's side, at Yaakov's wife's side. And now when Yaakov made it back to Eretz Yisrael, he's about to go home. She finished her shlichus in the world. She finished her mission in the world. She passes away. That living link, who always remained present through thick and thin, returns her soul to its maker. And even though she passed away, and Yaakov weeps, not only she passed away, Rivka passed away. The one who she invested everything for. So that link to the past is now gone. But the fact is that the seeds that they planted will endure. Yaakov buries her. He creates that name, Aloin Bachos. The seeds that she planted in Yaakov's soul, in his children's soul, will endure. The next scene is Yaakov is now sees Hashem and Hashem says, now change your name. From Yaakov to Yisrael. Yaakov means a heel, holding on to Esav's heel, busy confronting Esav, fighting with Esav. Now your name becomes Yisrael, which are the letters Li Roish. Not you're not a heel, you're my head. You have wrestled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. And in the next scene, Rachel will pass away. And in that, the life of the matriarchs will end in Chumash. We won't hear anymore about Rivka. We don't hear about Sarah, obviously. We don't hear about Rachel. And we don't hear about Leah. But those seeds that they planted and they have given their children will remain for eternity. It will continue. And generations later, Dvaira, Hanavia, will come back to that very place, Alain Bachos, where that faith, that soul of Dvaira was buried, in other words, planted. Because by Jews, we're never buried. As somebody once said, you know, 
they buried me, but they didn't know that I'm a seed. And when you bury a seed, it doesn't get buried. Sooner or later, it's going to grow into a splendid tree. So in that place where Dvorah was buried, and Yaakov called it Aloin Bachus, the Oak of Tears, another Dvorah comes. And those seeds inspire her to inspire Klal Yisrael at that time after 20 years of terrible fear and oppression. And those seeds that Dvorah plants will continue all the way to Rabbi Akiva who comes from the ultimate bee, from the ultimate tumma, from the ultimate sisra. Rabbi Akiva, Kulu Alibadi Rabbi Akiva, who would transfer, transmit the whole Tarish Baalpa at a time when Romans will completely destroy it, also in the credit of his wife, Rachel. Another woman who understood Yaakov's tenacious power, who understood Rabbi Akiva's power, and would not let him slip away and just be a shepherd like Yaakov. Just stay by Lavan, be a nice shepherd, Bring home a check to your family and move on. Rachel told Rabbi Akiva, you're the one who could save the world from Roman oppression. That ability to be able to see potential where nobody sees it. To be able to see light where others see darkness. To be able to see honey where other people feel stings. To be able to see a future where other people see piles of ashes. To be able to see redemption where other people see exile. That is the ability that these extraordinary people have bequeathed to all of the Jewish people, and one that's continued to be carried today by our own mothers and daughters until that great moment when the olive gets revealed and it all becomes one. Thank you. Just an announcement. Next week there's no class. I'm going to be in London. So next Tuesday, please, if you know anybody who comes, please tell them. And... Uh, Next Wednesday, in honor of Yutas Kislev, there will be a Fabrengen here in the tent with myself and Rabbi Shays Taub and Ellie Marcus. It's for men and women with a mechitza. That's next Wednesday night at 8. Chanukah, which is the week after, there will be a class. Be'ezer Hashem, same time. Have a wonderful week and thank you very much. I've been saying 20 years, but it was 22 years. Yes. That's, that's why yes. 20 years away and then two years on the journey. On the journey, yeah. Twenty so plus twenty and change. Amazing. amazing. Thank you. Because so one thing that you forgot to tie in, even though you mentioned yes. it, is the cries of Sister's mother. Right? Yes. Is what brought this whole yes. story. Yes. 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 When cried, she was rewarded. Yes. Her tears. Yes. Yes. I remember that yes. share you gave us. Yeah. 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 The same reason why yeah. there were so four giants for the four steps. Yeah. The Megala Mukas even writes that Sister's mother is also a metaphor for the Shechina. The Shechina was crying. Did Sisra manage to plant the seed of Rabbi Akiva in the world before he was killed? She was crying. She was crying the la- if, if the potential of Sisra was squandered or it, was, it came into the world. Who was crying? It says that Sisra's mother is a metaphor for the Shekhinah. She felt that her son has a tremendous gift with all of his evil. I know. Anyway, it was so huh? amazing. So, no, much so, in it. We oh. really, this is a double, that share that you gave whammy. us, that one. Like, we literally, like, we heard it yesterday. How many yes. years ago was it? Well, it was Everything a great recap. Get those. So, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. The Zavas Chalavodvash is Dvash Tamarim. You heard? Rabbitson. The Dvash, the honey of Eretz Yisrael, is Dvash Tamarim. Right. It's the honey of dates, which is also Tamar. Which is, yeah. Stam, it's also that. So Dvoira is honey. Dvoira produces honey and a Tamar produces honey. Tamarim.
And Eretz Yisrael was praised by being a land of milk and honey that comes from dates, which is Tamar, who is the soul of the Vaira. Good, good, good. Achotenu at. You are our sister. And therefore we're telling you, May you grow into thousands of myriads. Thank you for the correction. It's Beautiful. I always tell my students, triple speed was created for me. <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for coming. Welcome. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.